0: The coming of God's Spirit to give us the power, the strength, the might to do it, and to do the work of the first fruits, have come to understand more recently. It's about our work, it's about what we do here physically, and helping others to become part of the plan of God. Then you come to the Feast of Trumpets, and it pictures a time when the mystery of God is finally and fully revealed. But this mortal can truly put on immortality, and this corruption can put on incorruption. Never to be corrupt, never to be evil, never to be wrong, never to be bad, never to sin again, but to be absolutely perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. What more is there really to say? Well, there must be something. Let me ask some more mundane questions for a moment. Should we wear special clothes on the Sabbath? Should we wear fabrics mixed of woolen and linen? Some of these questions come up from time to time, year to year, and decade to decade. And in fact, there has been in the Church of God quite a little confusion about what is brought forward from the Old Testament and what is not, at least in terms of physical fulfillment, and we'll get to some of those more specifically a little further on, but I want to start this out just by posing those questions and then going perhaps the long way around the barn to come to an answer, but I think uh, it's a necessary trip around the barn. For us, to get some background and understanding of God's plan and purpose and what He has in mind and does expect of us today. Clothing is something we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, in terms of modesty and proper attire, and I spent quite a little time on that, and it's probably caused a certain amount of emotion here and there. Uh, But we need to understand. That clothing is used as one of the primary symbols in the Bible of spiritual condition. Our physical clothing that we might wear has a great deal of bearing in God's view of how things should be and what they shall be. This day pictures the time when the bride has made herself ready. Because unless the bride has made herself ready, she will not be changed, and the marriage ceremony, which is to follow at that time pictured by the Day of Atonement shortly hereafter, will not be something that we will be a part of. So we must have ourselves ready. Now how does a bride physically prepare herself for her wedding? Much of her preparation has to do with her clothing what dress she's going to wear, what jewelry she's going to wear, what kind of veil she'll have, what kind of shoes, even her underpants and her her, uh, garter and something blue, and, you know, they go on and on and on with all kinds of stuff. So a majority or a great deal of the preparation has to do with clothing. And lo and behold, we find that emphasis in the Bible as well. Daniel, I'm going to go through quite a few scriptures here pretty quickly. Uh, I don't have time to go and read them all. I would get into the context and start expounding, and this would take six sermons. So I'm going to try to get through it today, uh, and by quitting time, if at all possible. This is a double Sabbath, though, so I guess I get to go three hours, don't I? <laughs> Someone would say, yeah, but we already had one sermon. This is the second one. That's a double Sabbath. All right. Daniel 7, 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, the thrones of men, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow. Christ himself is portrayed as wearing garments white as snow, because white is portrayed as righteousness throughout the Bible. And our bridegroom is going to be clad in absolutely pure white garments. You've seen snow coming down out of the heavens and how white it can be. That's the way he is dressed. He wore nice threads while he was here on the earth, Matthew 27:35. They even cast lots over them, gambled to see who would get them. They were so prized. Does God dress special, I guess, is part of the question. And what does dress really mean? Mark 9, 2-3. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can wipe them. They became so white and so shining that it was beyond anything that anyone on earth could have ever created in terms of whiteness and brightness. There's our bridegroom. How is the bride supposed to come? Should she be dressed in any way, shape, or form somewhat like her husband? Or should she come to the wedding as is? Or is there something special there? Psalm 45, 8. All your garments garments, smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made you glad. Along the same line, Song song of Songs 4.11, Your lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the smell of your garments is like the smell of Lebanon. So he introduces here that the garments can have a sweet savor, A nice smell to them. It's okay to use certain fragrances. Some are mentioned here. Now let's notice how Christ says he bedecked his bride ancient Israel and how he intends to bedeck his current bride in preparation because Ezekiel 16 is written to us. Verses 10 through 13. I clothed you also with broiled work and shod you with badger skin And I girded you about with fine linen, and I covered you with silk, fine leathers, your skin is a fairly thin, beautiful leather, silk, wool, and embroidery even. I decked you also with ornaments. I put bracelets upon your hands, and a chain on your neck, a jewel on your forehead, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown upon your head. You were decked with gold and silver, and your raiment was of fine linen and silk. And bordered work. You did eat fine flour and honey and oil, and you were exceeding beautiful, and you did prosper into a kingdom. That's what he says he is bedecking us with. Now we look pretty physical and pretty mundane here today, don't we? And yet are we not being given gold nuggets of truth, week by week, month by month, that God is opening up and giving us? Do we not have jewels of understanding coming from his word that help lighten up and make beautiful his bride as those things are inculcated into our lives? Are we being given the clothing or the raiment of righteousness? We'll see that that ties in with this very clearly now. Proverbs 31, verse 25. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. So it begins to show that the spiritual qualities are what count. That those are the things to be clothed in. Strength, honor. Those should be clothing to us. Things that we wear, that people can see in us. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the eternal. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So all these physical things that we might wear are a type and a symbol of spiritual qualities. And for the good and the bad we will find clothes are symbolic of spiritual condition. Revelation 3, verse 5. He that overcomes... "...the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." So, as Christ is dressed in white, resplendent, blinding, shining white, so will the bride be, clothed in white raiment. Revelation 3, 18, I counsel to, to "...I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich." and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. Revelation 3.18 is obviously speaking of spiritual condition. It says, don't be naked, uh, but have on clothes of righteousness. Uh, it, Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says the Eternal, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So our sins are going to be turned from bloody, red crimes to absolute, pure, white conduct. chaste virgins, as Paul said the Corinthians would become. Pure, clean, and white. Ephesians 6, verse 13. Wherefore take to you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all to stand, we're in the evil day now, and we're counseled to take on the whole armor of God so that we'll be able to stand when things start coming apart. What should we be wearing in these evil days? Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Truth is part of our clothing. Having on the breastplate of righteousness that protects the vital organs, the lungs and the heart. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our feet should be headed in peaceful directions. One of the fruits of God's Spirit is peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Above all, in the end time, during the evil day, We're going to need faith. There's faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. But when we're facing the things we're going to face here, he says, above all, you better have that shield of faith. Absolute and total trust in God in every part of your life and being. That's what we, on this property, are here to do, is learn to trust in God. To take that shield of faith and know He will deliver us, He will protect us, He will take care of us, He will do those things that are needful. He brought us here, and He will take care of us. We had better believe that with all our hearts. We are in the end-time evil days. Isaiah 52, 1. Uh, Gordon was in Isaiah 51 and the awake, awake part. So I'll go on to chapter 52, which is more pertinent to what I have to say. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. When God starts growing his remnant together, and I believe that he's already beginning to do that in a small way, it'll be bigger later, The uncircumcised and unclean will not come in. Revelation 12, verse 1, talks about a woman clothed with the sun, with Christ, giving birth to his righteousness, giving birth to his character. So he shines as the sun, resplendent in white, so white no one can make it. And the bride, the woman, must be clothed the same way. We're to be the bride of Christ, aren't we? So we got to be dressed like he's dressed. And this day pictures the day when the bride is changed from human to spirit, from corruptible to incorruptible, and will shine like the sun. Now, what about the other side of this coin? Matthew 22, 11 See the parable of the wedding supper. I won't go and rehearse the whole thing. You know it pretty well. And when king came, came, came to see the guests, he said, which had not on a wedding garment, showed up at the wedding without a wedding garment. Is that important? Or can you just wear any old thing? Well, kicked him out. Said he couldn't be part of the wedding. We come to the wedding of Christ, we must be properly attired. We can't be in our spiritual overalls, we can't be in our spiritual shorts, can't be in, you know, our dirty socks, or whatever. Symbolically, we must be absolutely pure and clean. And it must be a wedding garment, just like the wedding garment of our bridegroom. I think I'll go back to Exodus 28. I don't want to read this whole passage, but there's a section back here. And God takes several chapters to describe the priest's clothes, the things that Aaron was to wear. Chapter 28 of Exodus, "...and take to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him, from among the children of Israel," "...that he may minister to me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and so on, Aaron's sons, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty." So God says we're going to have special garments made for the high priest and his sons, the other priests, and they are to be glorious and beautiful. Now we are all priests in training... To become kings and priests in the kingdom of God and this fits beautifully from a spiritual standpoint into that. Now do we need to go through here and have all these embroidered carefully made uh, garments made of gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen and cut of york and he goes through the whole chapter talking about that. Uh, let's go down to Verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave upon it the engraving of a signet, holiness to the eternal. So he had the stones in a breastplate for the Urim and Thummim that would light up depending on which tribe was named. He had holiness to the eternal written across his chest. It was very, very elaborate. I won't go into all of it for sake of time, but I want to get a principle out of this. Verse 38, and it shall be upon Forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall be always upon his forehead, right there that they might see it and be accepted before the eternal. And you shall embroider the coat of fine linen, and you shall make the mitre of fine linen, and you shall make the girdle of needlework. And for Aaron's sons you shall make coats, make for them girdles and bonnets. Shall you make for them for glory and for beauty, and you shall put them upon Aaron your brother and his sons with him, and shall anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And you shall make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness, from the loins unto the thighs they shall reach, and they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come into the tabernacle of the congregation, or when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his seed after him. Now that's a statute forever. Should we now be doing that? Should I be standing here in normal everyday? Well, not normal everyday. I don't wear these everyday, but this kind of clothing. Or should we have jewels and fine embroidery and so on? That was a statute forever, wasn't it? And when they came, let's not miss this, when they came to do the service of the Eternal, that was when they were to wear those. There's another scripture down here uh, where it says they wore other garments. It was Leviticus 6, I think, is the one that does that. Let go back and quickly read that. Leviticus 6, verse 10. The priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen breeches. shall he put upon his flesh... And take up the ashes which the fire has consumed with a burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar, and he shall put off his garments and put on other garments, and carry forth the ashes without the camp to a clean place. So for the ceremony, for the service of the altar and the tabernacle, they were to put on these special clothes, and then before they haul the ashes out, they were to take those off and put on other clothes. So there is a difference made here by God in what people wore for mundane, everyday tasks and what they wore in the specific service of God in the tabernacle. I think that should send us a message, at least, that our everyday work and when we come formally before God, there should be a difference in what we wear as budding priests of the kingdom of God but also stick in your mind that thing about it being an ordinance forever. We're going to have to make some wholesale changes here or not. question. I could go on with several places about this, Leviticus 16, Ezekiel 44:17, uh Ezra 269. It talks about 100 priest garments, showing that they had special garments for the priests. And this was many, many years later. Ezekiel 42:14. When the priests enter therein, then shall they, they shall not go out of the holy place into the outer court, but there they shall lay their garments wherein they minister, for they are holy, and shall put on other garments, and shall approach to those things which are for the people. The normal, every other, everyday things they were to have other garments for. Now, the question has arisen over the decades, I think probably as much from James 2 as anywhere. So let's go back and read that in the New Testament. I'm laying some background here for a lot of things. James chapter 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. He's introducing a subject here, that we're not to be having a respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly, and he gives an example of how you should not do it, a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit you here in a good place and say to the poor, Stand you there or sit here under my footstool, or are you then not partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts or conduct? Now, is that saying that when we come together before God, that some who are wealthy should be all dressed up and wear fine clothing and rings, and then those who are poor could just wear whatever? Now, we've already covered a very, very important principle that when we come before God, God gives several chapters of precious scriptural space to describing the things that Aaron and his sons were to wear and makes it very clear that they were to dress differently and wear those things when they came for service before God as opposed to doing mundane, and everyday things. That's a principle brought forward from the Old Testament. Now, we will always have the poor among us, Christ said. But we need to understand something, and that is this, that poor then was a whole lot different than poor today. In those days, only the rich drank wine. In those days, poor people barely had the wherewithal to have any clothes, upon their body, much less expensive clothes. Today in America, we do not have poor in that circumstance, and I'm not trying to shove something under the rug here, I'm trying to explain something. Today, poor in America means, do you have three cars, Or at worst, two cars because virtually everyone has a car. There are a few exceptions, but not very many. Everyone can afford a glass of wine. I doubt there's anybody in America that can't find a way to have wine if he wants it. In fact, he can stand on the street and say, we'll work for food so I can buy wine. And he'll get his wine. We do not have the poor as they did in that day. Now, if we did, and you had some in the congregation who could afford fine clothes, they should wear them, and the poor, grinding poor is what he's talking about here, should wear whatever they have. And if they do have a change of clothes, they ought to wear their best change of clothes to come before God in a formal sense. The point James is making is we should not show respect to persons. One person might be able to afford fine things, another peace person might not. But that does not mean that we should not make every effort we can to come dressed in a special way before God when we come to formally worship Him. Now we informally do it in our own prayers and our own Bible study at home, but here we have a formal setting a commanded assembly where it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, especially, as you see the day drawn here. So we're in the especially part now, aren't we? Especially we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And based on those principles of Christ wearing fine garments, that he will wear fine garments... Now, he wore them apparently every day he could afford it. So what he was crucified in was in his fine clothes. Now, it may have been that he did not wear as fine a clothes at other times. But what day was he taken? The holiest day, well, perhaps apart from atonement, of the year. After the Passover service, midnight that night, they came and got him. So he had on probably his finest clothes for the Passover itself. And therefore, when they took him captive, he had on his best. And that's what they gambled over, was what he was wearing to that holy day. So I don't know what he wore on Tuesday or Thursday, but on that holy day, he had on clothes that the soldiers were willing to gamble for. Must have been pretty nice threads nicer threads than you or I probably have ever worn or probably ever in this life will wear. We don't go out and buy 2 and 3,000 dollar suits, do we? Or more, I guess. I don't know how high they go now. Last ones I got before my wife went to a sale last week were 340 dollar suits I bought 10 years ago and I was beginning to get fringes on my garments. She finally said, "We got to throw these away." So, we're not here to be clothes horses. We're not here to show each other up. And that's what this was talking about. Oh, the rich people will cater to them. No, we don't. Rich and poor should be treated alike. They're all sons of God, created in the image of God, and should therefore be treated with respect and love, no matter what their financial conditions are. That's what James is saying. But the Bible is clear. The Christ wore on the Holy Day very fine clothes and the priests were to do the same thing. So that doesn't mean we should all go out and spend the rent money for fine clothes. I don't think I'm getting that from this but we still must yet answer before the day is over do we have to go back and build clothing for the priesthood and the ministry and, and dress Nelson and Gordon and I up in those fine, fancy things that they wore then. Is that necessary? Is ordinance forever. Can we read that? All right, let's go on. Uh, James 5, verse 2. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. So those who would be rich, who would be wealthy, who would heap treasure together on this earth, God says that is symbolic of dirty spiritual garments, because the emphasis has been on physical garments and physical riches as opposed to the spiritual garments of righteousness. Revelation three four. You have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So many in Sardis have dirty clothes and won't walk in white, but some few will. Revelation sixteen, fifteen. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. How would you like to be spiritually naked? when the trumpet sounds. It would be very shameful, wouldn't it, not to be able to rise from the earth with garments of righteousness made white in the blood of the Lamb. Jude 23 tells us how to approach different ones. Of some have compassion making a difference, it says, and then it says, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So our garments are to be white, clean, and resplendent. But the flesh, this world, sin, puts spots and wrinkles on our garments. And how is Christ going to present his bride, Ephesians 5? Without spot or without wrinkle. Her clothes will be well maintained, ironed, cleaned, no wrinkles, no spots, no stains, Anywhere on them. Exodus 19, 14 through 15. And Moses went down from the mount to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. That was a ceremonial thing. Not to be unclean from the marriage relationship at that time. Pentecost was coming, and they made special Preparations. Since Pentecost was coming, they washed their clothes. Now, that was probably a rare thing to do out there in the desert. There wasn't much water. But with the high day coming, Pentecost just around the corner, Moses told them, go wash your clothes. Come before God clean. Now, their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't grow old. They didn't wear during that 40 years, but they still got dirty. So they needed washed. So part of the preparation was to be sure you're clean when you come before God. Wear clean clothes. This is Zephaniah 1, verse 8. It shall come to pass in the day of the eternal sacrifice, and Zephaniah 1 is talking about the time of the financial crash here at the end, that I will punish the princes and the king's children... And all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Now, he tells us what kind of apparel we should have on when it comes down to the time that Christ intervenes in this world and begins to make some changes, and that is white, clean clothes. He says, If you have on strange apparel, don't have on what you should wear to the wedding, then you're going to be in deep trouble. What about John the Baptist? What went you out for to see? Matthew eleven eight. A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. John the Baptist had a job to do. A voice crying in the wilderness. He lived in the wilderness. He ate honey and locusts. His clothes were not soft clothes like you would see in a king's court. Mark 1, verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins and he did eat locusts and wild honey. So it was a pretty rough existence, wasn't it? Now I believe that you and I are called here in the spirit of John the Baptist. We're here to do some preparation. That's our job for the things that Christ is about to do in the church and on this earth. So we're called to the same kind of existence that John the Baptist had. So we're not here to be in fine, fancy homes. We're not here to wear fine, soft clothing. We're here to live a rather rough existence. And we are. A country existence. A farm existence. People who lived in the king's chamber wore fine, soft clothes. But if you're going to be out with your head under a cow milking or chasing goats around, that's not the kind of clothes you need on, is it? Well, God has called us to the same kind of job that he gave John the Baptist. So, we can chase our cows and we can chase our goats, but we can wash our clothes and we can come before God on his holy days wearing somewhat nicer garments. Doesn't mean we need to go to Fifth Avenue or I don't, even, I don't know where they sell fine men's clothes. Maybe there, maybe somewhere else. I have no idea. could care less anyway. We don't need that kind. But I think the principle brought forward from Leviticus and Exodus is very clear, that when you came before God, you put on different clothes. You had better ones for God's service, and you had everyday clothes for everyday things. And we are priests in training. 2 Corinthians 5, 2. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. It will be changed. So be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. The mortal might put on immortality. Immortality. Now, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yes, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. That's part of our clothing. A humble attitude. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So humility is a part of our proper attire before God and before each other. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 through 10. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair of gold or pearls or costly array, but which becomes women professing godliness with good works. So the main part of the adornment of our ladies should be Modest apparel with good works, showing godliness. To be sure that however you dress would be something God would approve of. The men need to do the same thing, but he addresses the women specifically here. Now, does that mean we shouldn't do our hair, or wear gold, or pearls, or costly jewels? No. We've already read in Ezekiel 16 that Christ is putting that kind of thing on his bride. The point is that looking good physically is not the point. Looking good spiritually and being properly spiritually clothed is the point. You can wear nice clothes to Sabbath, for instance. You can wear jewelry to Sabbath, for instance. But it is not or should not be accompanied by vanity and ego and trying to look good physically. Now, if we, I mean, as a goal, of course you have to prepare. It takes time to do your hair. It takes time to do your clothes. There's nothing wrong with that. I have jewels on myself. There's nothing wrong with that. But is that your purpose? Are you dressing to look good before God and to look nicer than on Tuesday and Wednesday for the right reasons, or is it out of vanity and ego? Is it with a modest attitude, easily embarrassed if you're not dressed modestly, in that kind of spiritual approach? Or is it one of vanity and ego and wanting to show the physical off? See, the, the, the physical does picture the spiritual And there's no room for pride, vanity, ego in our dress or in any part of our lives. We should be humble. And if we wear something, it should be to God's glory, maybe to your husband's glory if he buys you some nice things. Because he loves you and has done those things for you, just as Christ is doing those things for his giving Spiritual jewels, spiritual clothing that we might be properly attired when it comes time to get married. The question always comes up, well, it says in the New Testament that men ought to have their hair cut short, women with their hair long. And they'll always ask, how short is short and how long is long? When you read that scripture, that always comes up. And the answer to that is, be sure it's short enough that God would be pleased to look upon you and say, that's a man. Be sure it's long enough that if Christ showed up and looked at you and he he'd say, that's a woman. No doubt, no question, and she pleases me with the length of her hair which was given her for a covering. Not hats, hair. So I'm not going to get out of ruler and try to figure out how short men ought to have their hair, or how long women ought to have their hair. It's up to your wisdom, understanding, your desire to please God, to be absolutely sure that Christ would be pleased with you. See, that's your goal, is to please God, to please Christ. So it's not a matter... See, this is all about attitude. Is it a matter of how short can I make my hair or how long can I wear it? It's how can I please God? What would make Him really happy if He saw me? Would He say, I don't know. Or would He say, I like that? I want Him, when He returns and I'm standing on the earth wanting to be changed, to look at me and say, I like that. That's what I'd like for Him to say. Be changed, or however he does it. Trumpet will sound, it will happen, but it will be predetermined who. I want to be sure that I'm pleasing him in my attitude, my mind, level of righteousness and humility and salvation and all those things that we've read about. So when he says, dress modestly and be easily embarrassed, then you need to be absolutely sure... Man or woman, that if Christ looked at you, he'd say, there's a woman that has the right attitude, is dressing modestly and not showing off herself, and being the way she ought to be. See, that's the principle you need to operate off of. It's not a matter of, well, how can I put this? How sure can I do this? No, let's not get into that. Let's be absolutely sure we please God. Then we're saved. See, then you need to learn personal wisdom and understanding based on that principle and that attitude. I don't want to come to Sabbath services to address Almighty God in prayer to be here. And before I come over, you know, I've been working in this shirt three days, and I say, well, maybe I'll be all right. I don't want to go before God like that. If I asked him to be here, I want to be as clean as I can be, and I want to be dressed so that I wouldn't be embarrassed if he just showed up. Why's your shirt pale out, Daryl? Sabbath, you know. Ooh. Don't want that. I want to be sure he's pleased. And the example in the Bible is to come before him in formal settings with other clothes. Revelation 19, verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, that would be us having been changed and married to him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. He wants us to appear before him white and clean. That's the kind of bride he wants. Now, let's read a couple of scriptures that I mentioned in passing at the beginning. Leviticus 19, verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle gender with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon you. Now, is that something physically that we are commanded, required to do? is it Now linen or woolen are both good clothing mentioned in the Bible so neither of these is clean or unclean that would make one clean and the other unclean or whatever they're both fine fabrics but mixed together the quality is affected because wool and linen are cotton Uh, Shrink and expand at different rates. They are totally different fibers that are not compatible. And God did not want them to wear that. And I think that there's a spiritual lesson certainly to be learned there about purity and quality and spiritual strength. Because a woolen or an all linen garment was stronger and lasted longer than one mixed of those two materials. So it's a quality issue, yes, but. Is that all there is there, and are we required to keep it? Deuteronomy twenty two eleven, You shall not wear a garment of different sorts as of woolen and linen together. You shall make you fringes upon the four quarters of your vesture, vesture wherewith you cover yourself. Uh, tassels uh, were mentioned here. Uh, we have within the church, it seems, coming and going here and there, Questions about these things. Where people say, well, I should wear tassels on my clothing to remind me of God's Word. I have to write the Ten Commandments right on my doorpost physically. Uh, alright. How do you pick and choose? People pick through and they say, well, I should be doing this and I should be doing that. That sounds reasonable. But then he reads that one and says, well, you should put your wife out of the camp once a week, for a week. Somehow the men seem to kind of move over that one because they don't want to face the wife and daughters or whatever. Well, that's not something we ought to do. Put her out of the house? Make her live in the barn? That doesn't seem logical or reasonable to a man today, does it? Now, it might seem logical and reasonable for some to wear tassels on their clothing, but they're all written in the same context, aren't they? What about those fancy clothes that they made for Aaron and his sons? That was a statute forever. What does forever mean? These things are listed as statutes forever. A blowing, the shofar, the trumpets on the Sabbath or the holy days. Now, that one can sound reasonable, and we just played Handel's Messiah with the blowing of the trumpets because I think it fits in. It is nice to do on the Feast of Trumpets because it emphasizes what we're here for. Is it required? Is it necessary? Do we have to do it? What about circumcision? Let's go back to Genesis 17. Let's use this as an example. Genesis 17 this is a covenant that God made with Abraham. And I'll pick it up in verse 8. Genesis 17, verse 8. And God said to Abraham, You shall keep my covenant, therefore you and your seed after you in their generation. So not just Abraham, but all the seed that would follow. And if we're the seed of Abraham as Israelites, uh, then this certainly applies, doesn't it? And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, You shall keep my covenant there you and your seed after you in their generation. This is my covenant. which You shall keep between me and you and your seed after you, every child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, And that shall be a token of the covenant between you and, or me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man, child, in your generations. He that is born in the house, or bought with any stranger, see. If you're a Gentile, you had also to be circumcised. The Jews follow this pretty much assiduously today, still do it. Is it necessary? Let's read on a moment. Do I want here. Verse 13. He that is born in your house and he that is bought with your money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. That's a pretty powerful word. An everlasting covenant. The flesh of your foreskin be circumcised. Now this question comes up and it came up in the early New Testament church. Do We, as church people in the New Testament today, need to be physically circumcised. Now, there are some who will swear on a whole stack of Bibles, but we're not supposed to swear, but you ought to be, and there are others who say, you don't need to be. they've read back here where it says it's an everlasting thing between God and Abraham's seed. Is it necessary to do? Well, that seems like almost a no-brainer, doesn't it? You know what it said? Now, what ought to be done? Some of you looking forward to the ninth out there? All right, let's go to Romans 2. Let's look into this a little bit. Sounds like a pretty ironclad case for the moment, doesn't it? After what we just read? Does that change any? This is all the Word of God we're reading here. Not any of my words. See what the Word of God says. Romans two, verse twenty-five. For circumcision truly profits if you keep the law, but if you be a breaker of the law, your circumcision is made uncircumcision. It makes a difference whether you're physically circumcised or not. If you break the law of God, it doesn't count for anything. Is what He's saying. Therefore. If the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision count as if he's it might not be circumcised physically, but if he keeps the law, doesn't it count as if he's circumcised? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature it's natural not to be, it was only a covenant between Abraham and God, and is an unnatural thing. "...if it fulfill the law, judge you, who by the letter and circumcision do transgress the law. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, that is, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh." So he's saying in the New Testament, "...a Jew is not determined by the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men." but of God. So Paul states, in spite of Genesis 17, that it's circumcision of the heart and the inward man that counts, not circumcision of the flesh. And the circumcision of the flesh makes no difference if you break the law. Very interesting. Let's go to Galatians 5. Now Paul wrote, things that Peter had trouble understanding. He was as educated as Paul. Didn't know a lot of those three-syllable words. And sometimes we have trouble understanding Galatians, but I think we can make the overall view of it pretty clear. Galatians uh, 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, there was a yoke of bondage laid... Upon ancient Israel, and he says, you, sh- "You are now free from that." Behold, I, Paul, say to you. Now he spent three and a half years in the desert with Christ Himself, being taught. I, Paul, say to you that if you be circumcised, Christ, who physical Jew, in New Testament time. Nothing. About nothing. How not much it is? For I testify, is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. It's the whole law, me. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments here. We're talking about bondage and God's law. His Ten Commandments were not bondage. Bondage was having to go out of the camp for a week. Bondage was having to sacrifice a dove or a cow or a sheep or a goat every time you sinned or made a mistake. Bondage was having to wash yourself with carnal washings and ordinances every time you did the wrong thing, which was frequent. Bondage was that whole system of law that was put upon them because of obedience, as we will see shortly. So I said, if you insist upon circumcision, you've got to do all these other things too. Everything. Physically. Now we're still, still supposed to be circumcised spiritually, aren't we, of the heart? So everything back there then has a spiritual counterpart and not one jot or one tittle is done away. There's spiritual meaning in every one of those things that God instituted There were bondage that were there to lead them to Christ. We're not talking about man's laws here. We're talking about a whole system of law he put on those people because of disobedience and rebellion. But he said, if you're going to be physically circumcised and require that, you've got to do all of this. Tassels, mixed clothing, women out of the camp, on and on. You're better to do the whole law Christ is become of no effect to you. Is that how much we want Christ in our life? That it has no meaning, no effect on us? Whosoever you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. The law can't save you. Now, the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, are there to be kept, and that's abundantly clear throughout the Bible. Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy and just and good, speaking of the Ten Commandments. But this whole system of law that was placed upon them could not save them. I mean, you could go sacrifice an animal, but the blood of bull and goats could not save you. It is only through the forgiveness of the blood of Christ that we can be saved. That doesn't mean that we're not to keep the law. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Love doesn't work without faith. Love without faith is not real love. It's not the love of God. You did run well. Who did, hinder, who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Let's go down to verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Is that... No, that's not the one I wanted... Um, There's another one here about circumcision. That's all right. We'll go on to some more that are even clearer. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. That wasn't plain to you. Let's see. Let's try this one on. 1 Corinthians 7. And here I want verse 19. Well, let's see. Let's let's go to verse 18. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. I don't know how you do that trick. Uh, try to sew it back on, I guess. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not circumcised. So if you come into the church, Paul's saying, and you're not circumcised, you don't have to do it. Is that clear? Did I stutter? Did Paul stutter? I don't think so. Let's say then, verse 19. Circumcision is. Zero is all it is. And uncircumcision is nothing. Big fat zero again. In other words, that little flap of skin today means absolutely nothing one way or the other. Keeping of the commandment. Circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing, but the keeping of the commandment is everything. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. That is, circumcised or uncircumcised, just stay that way. Don't worry about it. Nothing you have to worry about. There's a big controversy in the church. Paul makes this very clear, doesn't he? Well, what happened to forever back there in Genesis 17? I think that's Fairly easy, we've already read in Romans 2. But circumcision now is of the heart. So has circumcision been done away with? No. It's just that the circumcision has moved up about a foot and a half. That's all. It has a different meaning. It has a different way of being expressed. Now it's the heart and mind that show conversion to being a spiritual Israelite. It isn't the physical cutting of flesh that makes you an Israelite. Back then, if you want wanted if somebody who's an Israelite, just do a kilt flip. You could find out all there was to it. Israelite or Gentile, easy enough. Now you have to look for conversion of the heart and mind. That's what counts. That's where true spiritual Israelites are determined. It's in the heart. The change, the transformation of the heart. So the Bible itself makes it abundantly clear that some of those promises that were made forever are not done away with whatsoever. They're simply changed in application. A different administration. Doesn't 1 Corinthians tell us there are different administrations? So what Christ is doing in the New Testament, New Covenant, is administering the same things, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, is he not? He's administering the same things through a different application. Nothing's been done away. It is only changed in how it is expressed. Now, didn't he tell us righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, we will not be in the kingdom of God. The Pharisees were very careful to do every little thing that the law of Moses said, weren't they? That will not gain you salvation. They missed the whole point of the law, didn't they? Love, mercy, judgment, relationships. They make the whole point. Now, I have noticed a trend when people start saying, well, I need to wear tassels, and I need to blow this, and I need to do that, and all these things that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. In the flesh, they get out of balance,
1: off base,
0: and they become really odd, strange, and weird. I've seen quite like that. It just happens because the focus is on all these little physical things and they're so busy trying to get them done that they begin to miss the boat like the Pharisees did. They lose understanding of spiritual things because they're focusing on physical things. Somebody says, well, I need the castles to remind me of God's ways on, on clothes. And I think a good answer to that is if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you better well have the tassels. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need the tassels. John 14 through 17 say that God's Word, His commands are engraved in our hearts. We don't need to physically post them on the door of our house. You can But you don't have to. It's part of that system back there. You don't have to. It's in the same category as circumcision. If you have God's Spirit to remind you of His laws and His ways, then you don't need those physical reminders. Because His Spirit is there. And when you start to think the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, it reminds you, doesn't it? Because your conscience is sharpened by the Word of God. Now, that one's a hard one, I guess, maybe to understand. I mean, it's so logical to put the Ten Commandments on your doorpost, isn't it? Sure. That one's easy to do. You can can have that made, or you can buy it at any store, almost. They've got those things made, so you can put them on your doorpost. That one seems logical and simple. All right. You can do it if you want to. But if you do, because you think you have to, then you are obliged to keep the whole law, say goodbye to your wife once a week, and see how that goes. Are you ready for that? I've had people tell me, you need to be out there doing animal sacrifices. Now, if I insist that we all be circumcised, I've got to also insist on animal sacrifices, don't I? And I think that would be a slap in the face of our Savior. For us to do that, because He is the sacrifice. He is the reality. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us He is the Passover. 1 Corinthians Corinthians 11 tells us, don't come to Passover service to eat a Passover meal. not supposed to do that. Very clear. If you do that, and you feel that you are obliged to do that, then you have to keep all those circumstances. That's what Paul made very clear in Galatians 6. Let's go back for a moment then to Galatians 3, and let me back this up. Galatians 3. Verse 18. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serves the law? Now, he's talking here about the whole body of law, not the Ten Commandments. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So, that whole body of law in the law of Moses was added because of Transgression because they would not keep the Ten Commandments and those things of God which God had said from the beginning. Now, how did Christ approach Exodus 24, 1, 2, and 3? When the Pharisees asked him, can we divorce for any reason? He said, in the beginning, it was not so. Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts. God never intended polygamy. But Moses, through God, and it's in the Bible, allowed polygamy then. But Christ took it where? Right back to the beginning. Now we're going to see, based on that principle, something very important here that we don't want to miss because it will help us to understand what we should physically do, not do, Now let's go on for a moment here. Uh, verse 19 of Galatians 3. Verse 20, Now a mediator is not a mediator but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? That whole body of law under Moses? That's what he's talking about in this book. God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness should have been by the law. The law is there. If you break it, it kills you. But if you keep it, it can't turn you into immortal, can it? Because all have sinned and come short and have broken it at some time. So the law is there, which if broken, condemns you, not saves you. It is only through the blood of Christ that we can be saved, because His blood is higher than the penalty of the law. He died for us, in other words. But the Scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. So up until the time of Christ, we were kept under the bondage of those carnal washings and ordinances, and he will make that clear in Hebrews here in a moment, which law he's talking about. 24, wherefore the law was our Christ might be justified by... What does a school teacher do? lead you through all the ins and outs of spelling or arithmetic or whatever so that you might learn to spell and read what did all that law that was given to those Israelites do they had been rebellious they would not do what God said they would not walk by faith therefore he gave them all those carnal washings and ordinances and ceremonies to remind them who God was so they had to wash before they could come before him they had to sacrifice an animal before they could come before him. Physically. Let's go to Hebrews now. Chapter 9. Ooh, I better hurry. Chapter 9 of Hebrews. Then truly the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly, a physical Sanctuary. We have a sanctuary in heaven now, don't we? It isn't worldly, it isn't physical. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. For there was a tabernacle made, and he goes through all the various things that were in it. Uh, verse 8, we, we won't go into all the detail of that, but it talks about sacrifices and, and how everything was made around the tabernacle. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It was when the veil of the temple was rent in twain at the death of Christ. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing, a physical temple and the physical service to it were what was important before Christ died. After that, things opened up. Which was a figure or a symbol for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and different washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Things were reformed, redone, reestablished, re-administered, if you will, when Christ came. The New Testament church a different form and a totally different administration but nothing was done away with but Christ became, become, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this building neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in one, once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us So he changed things, didn't he? He became the sacrifice. He became everything that was symbolized by all of those things in the past. The physical tabernacle, physical temple. He became it. He fulfilled all those things. Now does that mean then that the law of God is done away with? No, not at all. Everything is said and done. And the last man standing was who? John the Apostle. Read through 1 John. What does John say is still remaining? This is the love of God, that you keep the commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. He emphasizes throughout his whole book, through all three of those books, that the law of God is still in effect, we still must give it, and that law is what defines the love of God. Revelation 22 He says we are to be obedient to the commandments. And he talks about idolatry and adultery and lying there. The Ten Commandments. So after this body of law that Paul is talking about is done away with, the commandments of God are still there, the Ten Commandments, which are summarized by love God, love your neighbor. Now, how then do we make a difference between what to physically keep today and what should be brought forward in spiritual principle. And I think the key to that is this. Those things which God originally intended are still valid physically today. Those things which came before that body of law of Moses that came because of transgression. Jeremiah 7.22 is another good one to throw in there. He did not speak to them when they came out of Egypt of sacrifices. And he didn't. It was after they disobeyed and committed idolatry and adultery that he added those things. So it was what he originally intended that still physically must be done. Now let's look at a few of those things. Go back to creation. What was physically created then that is carried forth in the New Testament today. The Sabbath is a good example. Genesis 1.14, the calendar, is another example because it said, by it you will keep the moleds or the feast days. So the Sabbath and the Holy Days, which are tagged to the Sabbath, or part of the Sabbath command, are still kept in the New Testament, aren't they? Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. Paul had to get to, where was it, by the fast or by atonement. They were clearly keeping the holy days in the New Testament and the weekly Sabbath. Clean and unclean meats were still being kept in the New Testament. When were both instituted? By Moses? No! They were instituted by creation. From the beginning, God made clean and unclean so that they would always be a symbol of spiritual cleanliness and uncleanliness. They're from the very beginning. Uh, sacrifices of some kind were also given at the beginning, were they not? Otherwise, Cain and Abel would not have known to sacrifice, nor would they have known what kind of sacrifice they should give, and Cain wouldn't have had the wrong attitude and said, well, I'll take vegetables if I want to. He knew the difference, but he was rebellious. Murder was not allowed because Cain suffered for killing Abel, did he not? What did Adam and Eve break In the Garden of Eden. They ignored two things, basically. A, they committed idolatry by not doing what Almighty God said. B, they committed the breaking of the second part of the commandments by blaming and accusing one another and doing character assassination and not having the right relationship between human beings. First four of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God, the last six with man. Those are the two they broke. On those hang the entire law and prophets. Tiding was known before Moses ever gave those laws. Abraham knew how much to give, it wasn't six percent, wasn't 13 percent. wasn't just of farm income, it was from the spoils of war, any increase he had. How did Jacob know it was 10 percent instead of 37 or eight? Those things were known. They were instituted by God in the beginning. Adam and Eve knew them. Enoch knew them. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob knew them before Moses. Those are things that are still, we find, in effect in the New Testament. Ten Commandments were given long before Moses. And you should not kill or commit adultery or lie or commit idolatry even before then. Otherwise, how could God have wiped mankind out in Noah's flood if there hadn't been sin? Obviously there were sin. Evil and violence. Marriage. One man, one woman. Was from the beginning. And Christ said... You want to know the answer to this one? Don't go to Moses. Go to the beginning. That's all I'm doing here today, standing here telling you, go back to the beginning. And realize that all those carnal washings and ordinances, as Paul says in Hebrews 9.10, were added because of transgression. Now, none of them were done away. We've been going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and showing that he raised them to a higher standard and a spiritual keeping now. And circumcision is one of the best examples because it is so clear in the New Testament that physical circumcision is no longer needed. Now, Abraham's covenant still stands. It's just that circumcision has a different form. It's of the heart and mind now. So, tassels is of the heart and mind now. God writes his spirit in our minds, so we don't need physical tassels to remind us. You'd ignore them after a while anyway. You need the Holy Spirit of God there to be your conscience, your guide. We don't have to put women out of the camp now. Those are ceremonial, carnal washings and ordinances that were done to remind them who God was. But we have God's Spirit now. We have Christ the Savior now. We don't need those things. Although in principle, they still all apply. We still need to be reminded of God, just not by tassels. We still need to be pure and to have strength and quality, but we don't have to wear garments not mixed of linen and wool. Well, even though clothing manufacturers today, as far as I know, don't mix those two things because it doesn't make good fabric. Now they do various things with synthetics but they are compatible with the cotton or whatever they're wearing, using so that one is not stronger or weaker than the other. And you can wash them over and over and over and over again. And they don't get all misshaped and everything because they are compatible fibers. So we are not required not to mix fabric. We are not required to wear tassels. But there is a spiritual meaning in all those things that is brought forward because not one jot or one tittle is done away, but it becomes very clear in Hebrews and in Galatians that is a change in the way they are viewed and the way that they are administered. I think that you would be very safe always to go back to God's original intent and those hints of what was done from Genesis 1 uh, from the creation And forward, and then realize that those physical things in the law of Moses do not need to be done unless they are attached to something that came originally. The Sabbath command includes the feasts, the tithing of second tithe is attached to the feasts. So that today, God has provided the wherewithal that we might go and enjoy his feast physically and spiritually in the way which he originally intended. So those things that are there that are attached to something that came originally then remain physically to be done. But those things which are not attached to the original are physical ceremonial things that were given because of transgression and now are not needed, needed to be kept physically we do need to understand the spiritual significance of each and every one of them. That's why I can go back and say, hey, there's several chapters here on just how they were to make the priest clothes. Very exacting, precise things. Well, what does the New Testament tell us? Live by every word of God. Very precise. Very specific. So our spiritual clothing that we are to wear has to be formed from and made from every word of God. And therefore, there is great meaning for us spiritually today in how Aaron's clothes were made. To go before God, we need to be special. We are to shine and wear white clothing, humility, meekness, righteousness as a robe, and so on and so forth as we've already read. So this day is very important in terms of attire. By the time this day, or at least what it symbolizes, actually occurs, and we are changed, we have to come as a bride prepared, properly dressed for the wedding. No spot, no wrinkle, modest, embarrassed if we're not dressed quite right, because he will shine like the sun and he'll be wearing whiter clothes than we have ever seen in our lives. And he wants us to be dressed just like he is so that we can be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and go into the wedding supper.